This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Cape Fear Unearthed a podcast from Star News Media. I am your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When you're not joining me each week on this podcast to talk about local history, you can find my byline on coverage of the city, the local film and television industry, and my weekly TV Hunter column over at starnewsonline.com. This week, we're going to crack open the Cape Fear history books of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures to explore the life and death of a woman credited with helping deliver one of the first major wins for the Confederacy in the Civil War through espionage. As always, I will share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we decipher the life of Rose O'Neill Greenhow, a trusted socialite turned Confederate spy. When the first shots of the Civil War were fired at Fort Sumter in the spring of 1861, Rose O'Neill Greenhow suddenly found herself living behind enemy lines. The prominent socialite traveled among the highest and mightiest political and social circles in Washington, D.C., And because of her standing, Colonel Thomas Jordan came to Rose that April with a dangerous but intriguing proposition. He wanted to train her to be a spy for the Confederacy and to assume leadership of an espionage ring he had established within the Capitol, using her connections within the federal headquarters to cultivate sources, gather information, and smuggle intel to military forces in the South. Although known for her elegance, poise, and perennial place in the D.C. social scene, Rose was never intimidated by rubbing shoulders with the powerful. She certainly knew how to handle the plotting politicians in town, and better yet, she knew how to get what she wanted from them. She'd kept the company of John C. Calhoun, the former vice president under John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, and was a favorite of the ever-popular Dolly Madison. She was also a close personal friend of President James Buchanan, who sought her counsel and friendship throughout his administration. Some in the community insisted that there was more to their relationship, as Rose was a widow and Buchanan was a bachelor. But historians say it was likely just a friendship of trust, a rarity in a political climate on the brink of war. But the biggest factor for Rose when presented with Jordan's proposition was her infallible allegiance to the South, a loyalty she only let certain people in on. She had first come to town as a young girl from her family's plantation in Maryland, where she was born around 1813 as Maria Rosetta O'Neill, with an E. Her father was murdered four years later at the hands of his black valet, leaving the family in debt and her mother to raise five children on her own. After the loss, Rose, the nickname she went by as a child and would later assume as an adult, and her sister Ellen were sent to live with their aunt in D.C., After establishing herself in the social circles of the capital, 
Rose would go on to marry a lawyer within the State Department by the name of Robert Greenhow Jr. Soon, the couple traveled west, living in New Mexico and San Francisco for his work, and welcoming three daughters before Robert's sudden death in 1854. Now in a situation eerily similar to her own mom, Rose was left to raise three children with another on the way. So she set out to move the greenhouse back to D.C. Despite a name that evokes the bright, deep, blossoming color of a rose, the widow began to drape herself in her signature black mourning dresses, which she stitched by hand. At the same time of the family's retreat back to D.C., tensions were boiling to a head as the issue of slavery and talk of secession began to invade the dinner parties and social gatherings in D.C. that had previously been devoid of such conversation. In her book, Wild Rose, author Anne Blackman noted that around this time, in the late 1850s, Rose began hosting dinner parties for senators, governors, and presidential candidates from both sides of the aisle, using her social gatherings to study those who she believed would soon become her allies or her enemies. At these parties, she is said to have denounced early abolitionist efforts and vocally supported secession, something Southern sympathizers took notice of. Rose became adamant that she wanted to protect the Southern way of life, and with Colonel Jordan's proposition, she had found a way to do it. In April 1861, Jordan handed off his spy ring to Rose and she got to work, using a secret cipher and her own recruits to send information to the South through concealed channels and couriers. Pretty quickly, Rose became a vital part of the Confederacy's intelligence collection. No war is won or lost solely on the battlefield, and while clashes between armies are key to furthering one's cause with brute force, so too is the delicate action of mining sources for insight into the enemy's strategy. And Rose knew it. In this arena, she was almost too good at her job, though it should be noted that Washington wasn't exactly the Fort Knox of secret-keeping at this stage of war. At the head of the spy ring, she continued to use her friendships with the elected and the tastemakers to gather her information. Her primary source was likely Massachusetts Senator Henry Wilson, with whom she is said to have had a sexual relationship, as evidenced by the number of love letters he wrote to her. But Rose dealt her deepest cut to the federal cause in July 1861 when her nine-word correspondence to General Beauregard led the Confederates to a victory at the First Battle of Bull Run in Manassas, Virginia. Had the Confederates lost in Manassas, historians say Union forces could have captured the southern capital of Richmond and possibly ended the war. Rose's role in that battle and eventual victory didn't go unnoticed, drawing praise from Confederate President Jefferson Davis himself, a fact that she included in her autobiography. Just days after the battle, Rose said she received a note from Colonel Jordan that read, quote, Our president and our general direct me to thank you. We rely upon you for further information. The Confederacy owes you a debt. By August 1861, it had become hard to conceal Rose's efforts any further, having caught the eye of Alan Pinkerton, the head of the Federal Secret Service. In his report on Rose, Pinkerton wrote at length of her misdeeds to aid the Confederacy. Quote, She had made use of whoever and whatever she could as mediums to carry into effect her unholy purposes. 
she has not used her powers in vain among the officers of the army, not a few of whom she has robbed of patriot hearts and transformed them into sympathizers with the enemy of the country. Pinkerton placed Rose under house arrest with her youngest daughter, nicknamed Little Rose, because she was always at her mother's side. Her home, where Pinkerton would place other suspected Southern spies, and from which passerbys would crane their neck to catch a glimpse of her, became known as Fort Greenhow. But even sequestered under the watchful eye of her enemy, Rose continued to dispense information from her home to her informants, and even managed to get out a plea for release to Secretary of State William Seward, a defiance that would eventually earn her and little Rose a cell at Old Capitol Prison. By May 1862, Little Rose had contracted smallpox within the prison, and her mother had been sentenced to exile from the North, taken to Virginia under the condition they remain in Confederate territory. When Rose arrived, she was celebrated in the South as a hero, and President Davis didn't waste time in assigning her a new mission, emissary to Europe. With her cover as a harmless widow now all but blown, she knew her social skills could prove useful in bolstering support for the Confederate cause in France and Britain. While across the pond, stories say that she was granted an audience with Queen Elizabeth and Napoleon III, and that she met with influential aristocrats to persuade them why an America in the hands of the Confederacy was beneficial to their interest. Rose spent years abroad doing what she did best, working the room. She even managed to write her autobiography in England, titled My Imprisonment, comma, or The First Year of Abolitionist Rule in Washington. The book was a hit, and it acted as a kind of propaganda that curried Confederate favor in the form of more financial assistance. By August 1864, though, Rose said goodbye to little Rose, who was now living in Paris, and set sail from Scotland to America. With her, she carried messages from foreign Southern allies, her extensive diaries, suitcases stuffed with the finest dresses, and a small bag clutching $2,000 in gold. She boarded a ship named Condor, which was embarking on its maiden voyage with a course set for Wilmington. But before Rose could again step foot on Southern soil, the ship would first have to run the blockade, which it attempted in the early morning hours of October 1st. Under the cloak of night, the ship was being pursued by the Union runner Niffin when it swerved to miss the wreckage of the Nighthawk and ran aground in the inlet of the Cape Fear River. Rose and a few others fled on a rowboat hoping to evade capture, but the nighttime waves were too mighty to conquer. The boat capsized and with her pouches of gold and correspondences weighing her down, the wild Rose drowned in the darkness. Her body was found the next morning on the beach at Fort Fisher and carried to the fort's commander, who arranged to have her sent to Wilmington on the steamer Cape Fear. News of Rose's death seemed to travel faster than the steamer itself, as she was welcomed by hundreds of mourners when she arrived in the port city. Rose O'Neill Greenhow was not a soldier, a politician, or a general, but she received a full military funeral with her body wrapped tightly in a Confederate flag. Today, she's buried atop a hill in Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington. Far from her birthplace in Maryland, her reputation in Washington, D.C., and her years abroad in Europe. For Wilmington, 
Rose wasn't a local or a neighbor, but her stories certainly preceded her. In a war where brothers killed brothers, Rose Greenhough commanded over a battle of deception, intrigue, and tactic. In her book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, author Karen Abbott explains that Rose was something else to locals in Wilmington, who were unexpectedly tasked with bringing an end to the story of the rebel Rose. Quote, They called Rose a heroine and compared her to Joan of Arc. But they were still mostly strangers, mourning a symbol more than a person. So much of Rose Greenhouse's story happens before she even gets here in the Cape Fear region. And I brought a guest today to kind of talk about why this area identified so much with her and why they celebrated her once uh, she was actually already gone. Uh, So joining me now is uh, Joseph Shepard. He works in the State and Local History Collection at the New Hanover County Library in downtown Wilmington. Thank you so much for joining me, Joe. Thanks for having me, Hunter. It's good to be here. So, and you'll remember Joe from our first (laughs) season, he was here talking about Jacob's Run and the... Uh, and the tunnels underneath oh, downtown yes. Wilmington, which was one of our most popular episodes. Um, so, but today we're here to talk about Rose. And one thing I found fascinating talking to you when I was researching this was uh, this area really grabbed hold of the Rose Greenhouse story yes. when she died here. Um, mm-hmm. And what did you find about the way in which, you know, once they got kind of control over her body and her funeral, yes. what did you find out about them kind of celebrating her? Well, in, in many ways, it was a celebrity funeral for that time period. 1864, the war is going on. People are tired. They want some sort of relief or, if you want to say, entertainment. And having this person wash up on their shores literally created the uh, diversity or the what they needed to get away and escape. So there's a lot of outpouring of emotions from people who probably had just barely heard of her at this time period. You've got to realize a lot of her notoriety happens after, long after the Civil War ends and books are printed about her and her story is put out. But at this time period, 1864, people living in Wilmington had limited information coming in. At this point, they were blockaded. They were not receiving telegrams or telegraphs from anywhere else, really outside of the South. What papers they were getting were limited, and of course, northern Union papers that were making their way here wouldn't be printing stories about Mrs. Greenhow because— They're not celebrating the enemy. Yeah, who is she? So she arrives, and they hear about this person, and it's in many ways, it's a a human reaction for people. Again, we're talking about people and what they do. Mrs. O'Neill, Mrs. Greenhow's body is brought here to Wilmington. After she was literally washed up on shore, her body is recovered. She comes to Wilmington. There's a great uh, announcement that this person has arrived. And at that point, the outpouring of people from the city then convulsed to see this body. And they cry, and they're sad. And, And yes, they're sad that this person is gone, who they barely knew, but they're crying for people they know who's gone. It's a release. Yes. And many of them have not had the opportunity the past four years to have a real funeral for even their loved ones. The last time you would have seen actual bodies being carried for burial would have been in the fall of 1862. And those bodies were carried out with yellow fever, piled up and pulled out by carts. So having a procession with a celebrity person gave them that 
that outlet that they needed. But you also did research into the way in which they prepared her to yes. even be buried yes. because they did it in a way that was not only religious but celebratory. They had a procession for her. So what did you learn about that? Well, Mrs. Mrs. Greenhill's body, of course, is brought up the river on a towboat. Yes. <laughs> And uh, she's received by the Ladies' Aid Society. She's also received by the Catholic women from the Church of St. Thomas Apostle. As at that point, Mrs. Greenhow had re-entered the church of her youth and was now a practicing Roman Catholic. So the Catholic ladies came to prepare her body according to the rites of that church. She was taken to the hospital, uh, they call it Hospital Camp Number 4, which I believe now is the Derizette House at, okay. between uh, Dock. It's on Dock Street between 2nd and 3rd. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, it's right across the street from the Church of St. Thomas yeah. Apostle, so very convenient. And inside this hospital, there was a makeshift chapel. And all hospitals at one point had chapels, and some still do. But at that point, they prepared her body there, and they would have cleaned the body, dressed her in a fine gown, and, of course, placed a crucifix upon her bosom to show her religious mm-hmm. religiosity at that time. Um, there's very many comments about the beauty of Mrs. Greenhow. Um, she might have had all her teeth and her hair, which is what maybe her beauty was all about at that time, but, you know, beauty's in the beholder. And so her body's prepared, it's laid out, and then they have uh, uh, probably what happened was then the priest was called and she was given um, an anointing for her death. Uh, At this point, with uh, the customs of that time, uh, last rites were not conducted on Mm -hmm. somebody who had already died. So her body probably might have received something. And then there would have been a wake service, as we call it in the South. And at that point, prayers would have been said, and then the crowds would have started arriving yeah. to view the body. I imagine they're probably already outside oh, waiting yes. to, oh. to just see any type of movement or, yes. or reaction from people who oh. are with her. Oh, the word has spread. And so, oh, now I get to pull out my best morning suit. And, you know, the whole world wanted to come see this. Yeah. And soldiers that had heard about her and who were stationed here, this was, yes, a great thing to happen for Wilmington, if you want to say, the death of Mrs. Greenhow. Uh, So, yes, the processions then began at that time to see her body. And this all happened on October 1st of 1864. By 2 o'clock the next day, the funeral would have occurred. And then her body was taken over to the Church of St. Thomas, carefully carried across the street where a funeral mass would have taken place. And the pastor at that time was the Reverend Dr. James A. Kukorin, Doctor of Divinity, by the way. He, would have, he was the, uh, the pastor of the church at that point. And um, they would have conducted a full Latin mass for her at that point with, with communion, etc., so they didn't uh, they didn't spare any expense for celebrating oh, the no. life or, or and burial no. of uh, Rose. No, the descriptions of the of the corpse and the the flowers that were found and the ribbons that were placed in her hair, the finest silk was probably pulled out of people's you know their own personal gowns and for that. So, and again, we're in wartime Wilmington where there's limited supplies coming in. So I'm certain that. Uh, somebody gave up their best gown for her to be laid out and stayed in. 
and uh, her hair was done and makeup and appliances to make her look, her beauty come out that much more. And so many descriptions uh, reveal that they thought she was just lying there soundly asleep. And it's very, very beautiful to, to believe that. But, you know, there's been many funerals I've been attended to where, uh, you know, you're upset and the, yeah. the corpse looks wonderful. I always, it always makes me laugh when people say, oh, they looked wonderful. Yeah. Well, yes, they're, but they're dead. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, and you've got to imagine that people are, are speaking highly of her. They are they're trying to pay respects to her as a figure, yes. you know, as a as someone who fought for the cause that they're still fighting. For. Yes, they're still oh, yes. they're still in the midst of war. Oh, yes. And uh, so once the the service is over, there's a funeral procession, correct? Exactly. And her her remains would have been covered, of course, with the Confederate flag. The black carriage at that point would have been what they used pulled by a black horse and the mm-hmm. procession would have followed and these are people on foot and uh, even up into the 20th century when uh, r- the remains of a person were taken to a funeral they would march from the church to the cemetery wow. and those were following and generally um, you can imagine at that time what who came out for that so the procession itself probably went several blocks yeah I imagine everyone came out. Oh, I'm sure the whole city who was free did. Uh, And I guess they're lucky that she wasn't buried much farther away or it would have been a much longer (laughs) walk. Uh, But, you know, it would have gone downtown and then up towards Oakdale. Certainly through down Third Street, then proceeding east on Market to Oakdale Cemetery. Uh, And, you know, as much as her story is, uh, you know, this kind of wide arching confederate you know hero to some people her story continues after she's buried you know people continue to want to honor her in ways what ways in which years after her death Mm -hmm. and years after the war were people kind of commemorating her well the the ladies memorial association uh, which in some ways is connected to the confederate daughters of america they erected a marker on her grave in 1899 and um, there's there's words dedicated to her on that marker and then in 1955, a downtown granite marker was erected in her honor. And again, similar words were placed on that particular marker. And it's down, it was, now where it's gone to, I can't tell you, <laughs> but it was near the intersection of 3rd and Market Streets here in downtown Wilmington, where other granite markers have been placed. Yeah, and that was, I was going to say that, you know, as we spoke about um, before we went on air, mm-hmm. the you know there was an effort to really commemorate anyone and everyone that you could following the Civil War to almost keep that sentiment for the Confederacy alive. Very much so. And uh, she, Mrs. Greenhow, her fame had continued to that point. And even today, there are stories written about her and what went on. There's more scholarly research, of course, conducted left and right, and there's many people who debate exactly what was she doing before she was arrested. Um, there's, you know, that happens with all kinds of figures that are larger and smaller throughout history. But she, the fact that she not only was buried here, but her remains are still here in Wilmington, mm-hmm. and she's not a person from here. So, uh, you know, again, that's not so unusual. Um, it's just, yeah, we have this famous person and we can show you where she's buried. 
Yeah. I did go find her grave. Yeah. I will say it took yes. me a minute because Oakdale, uh, if you've read the Star News recently, Oakdale did have a good amount of damage from Hurricane Florence. And uh, there was a tree down right near her and mm. they've had to, uh, you know, they've removed it. And so I was kind of using that uh, from pictures I had seen <laughs> and it wasn't there anymore. So uh, it was kind of difficult to find her her um, actual grave. But the, the marker that they put up, it actually reads Miss O'Neill, oh, Miss O'In, period, Greenhow. Uh, a bearer of dispatches to the Confederate government. Um, and then on the back is actually a two-sided memorial. Um, the back reads, drowned off Fort Fisher from the steamer Condor while attempting to run the blockade September 30th, 1864. So uh, they put her story and her Wilmington connection uh, in stone. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, we also, you know, she had friends here. She was, and it wasn't just that she was totally unknown in Wilmington. Mm-hmm. I mean, I forgot to mention she was friends with the commander, uh, General Whiting, at that point. So, yes, there was reason for her to to have that dedication. And I, certainly, um, you know, those who were in the know didn't know her yeah. and were probably happy to receive her here. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, you also mentioned that, you know, she did have this friend here. So after she was released from prison, you know, I spoke a little bit about this in the story. Yeah. She, uh, they were trying to find kind of her next move, ways in which they could use her talents. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so she almost did kind of a, a tour of the Confederate South oh, that yes. brought her through Wilmington to meet oh, this friend. you got to believe so. I mean, she had already in her, her letters that she needed to get published mm-hmm. and the books to get printed yeah. and, you know. Don't, don't we all do that when we have stuff we need to sell? Yeah. So she made her visit throughout the South. But in, and people always say, oh, well, you know, coming to Wilmington. But at that time, Wilmington was still a fairly large city mm-hmm. and still the largest city in North Carolina. So, yes, she did stop here and she did know General Whiting. So there's that reason yeah. on her way then eventually to Charleston, South Carolina, before leaving for Europe and et cetera. And then, you know, on her fateful trip back to <laughs> America, this would have been kind of uh, the only place to get back into exactly. the Confederate South. At this point, all blockade of southern ports was going on by the federal fleet. Wilmington was left open. And, of course, there's debate about why Wilmington was left open. But it was open, and she made her way here. And uh, and her, you know, fate crossed with Wilmington's, I guess, as you would say. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, this, you know, so much of the story of Rose, like I mentioned, happens when she's in D.C., when she has this whole other life that doesn't really intersect with us until the very end. Right. Um, right. But the people in Wilmington definitely didn't waste the opportunity to, you know, kind of put a period on her story. Oh, you're right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, thank you so much, Joe. I really well, thanks, appreciate it. This is great. Enjoyed it and hope to come back again soon. Please do. That's it for this week's episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the story of Rose O'Neill Greenhow. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode where we will explore another tale from the history books. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on this week's episode on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed. Or you can email us your thoughts at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. As this season ramps up, we also encourage you to join our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their thoughts on the region's history. In that group, I will also be posting extra content, like pictures pertaining to each week's episode, 
including pictures of Rose and Little Rose while they were in Old Capitol Prison, and more as the season progresses. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. Finally, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish, and this episode was recorded at WHQR Studios in downtown Wilmington. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream this show so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear on Earth. Until next week, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.